And as you have your Bible, make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we continue on in our study. And it's been a couple weeks that we've been together in 1 Corinthians as we've had a couple guest speakers lately. And uh, it's been a blessing to have that. But now we're getting back into our study through 1 Corinthians. And since it's been a couple weeks, a little bit of a refresher and reminder for you is that Paul has been in these first four uh, chapters, or these first five chapters, I should say, of 1 Corinthians, has been having to deal with a lot of different issues and, 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 and problems and struggles that have been arising within the church here at Corinth. Chapters one to four, he's been having to deal with the divisions and, and the contentions that have been arising uh, in the church as people have been rallying around certain church leaders saying, oh, this is the right guy to follow I've got it right, you guys have it wrong. And they were boasting in themselves for having the right person that they're aligning with. And it was just creating division and disunity in the church. But then in chapter five, they were uniting over things that they should have been dividing over. And that was areas of sin. As there was a brother in the church that was having an illicit relationship with his stepmother, it was not good. And rather than the church coming against this and, and, and rebuking it and kind of bringing correction, they were celebrating it and saying, oh, look at the grace that we have in the Lord that we can just exercise grace in the midst of sin. And it was something that should have been corrected. And Paul had to come in and bring that correction, revealing how if you allow a little bit of sin into the midst of the church, it's going to spread through and it's going to impact many. So in chapter six now, as we get into today, Paul is continuing on having to deal with various issues that were arising within the church and things that the church in Corinth was doing that was very unchristlike. What was happening now in chapter six is that Paul's having to deal with people in the church that were suing one another and taking one another to the legal systems of the world, looking to gain an advantage, looking to you know, take away from others for their own selfish gain in a sense. And so Paul has to deal with this issue of them fighting and quarreling and taking one another to court. Shouldn't have been. There was a, a minister and a lawyer that were together at a party and they were conversing with one another and the pastor said to the, to the lawyer, what do you do if you make a big mistake in a court case? Well, the lawyer says, I try to fix it if it's a big one and if it's kind of a small and significant one, I just kind of ignore it and just keep moving on. And the lawyer said, what do you do if you make a big mistake like that? And the pastor said, well, you know, I do much the same as you. For instance, the other day I was teaching uh, and, and saying, and I meant to say that the devil is the father of liars, but I ended up accidentally saying the devil is the father of lawyers. And I just moved on. I just <laughs> let it go. So Paul was hearing that there were a lot of lawyers getting dragged into the affairs of the church as the church was going to the legal systems of the world and it was just creating a, a, a real shame within the church. And Paul, once again, has to address this issue towards this still growing and maturing church of Corinth. And so we're gonna look at three things here when it comes to you know, judgment being given. We're gonna look at how saints, we're gonna see saints who will judge, verses one to four. We're gonna see verses five to eight, saints who show poor judgment, and then verses 9 to 11, sinners who will be judged. And what that is all talking about and revealing. So that's kind of how we're going to break down these first 11 verses that we're going to cover here this morning. It says in verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. 
Paul, you see, right away, he's just kind of shocked. Shouldn't be at this point, but he's still surprised at the way that this church is conducting themselves and the things that they were doing even towards one another. Dare any of you, he's kind of like shocked at the boldness that they're having in stepping into things that the church should not have been engaging in, suing one another, taking one another to court. Something that the church should not have been doing. But yet, interestingly, over the last 10 years here in Canada, Canada's had an average of 915,000 civil court cases per year. Being quick to sue someone or lean on the legal system to correct any kind of wrongs is something that we're very familiar with in our culture, right? And that, and that goes the same for many other countries. And it was much the same here in the culture that Paul was dealing with here in Corinth. In fact, William Barclay said this. He said, Paul is dealing with a problem which specially affected the Greeks. The Jews did not normally go to law in the public law courts at all. They settled things before the elders of the village or the elders of the synagogue. To them, justice was far more a thing to be settled in a family spirit than in a legal spirit. In fact, the Jewish law expressly forbade a Jew to go to law at all in a non-Jewish court. To do so was considered blasphemy against the divine law of God. It was quite different, however, with the Greeks. They were characteristically a litigious people. The law courts were one of their chief entertainments. Can you believe it? So they're all like, hey kids, assemble yourselves, pack a lunch, we're going to the courts today. It's going to be a fun time. Now we're going to sit back and enjoy the show that's going to go on before us. And this is something that was very commonplace for people to take one another to the courts. It's something that has been very commonplace and even in the form of entertainment today. How many shows do we have about, you know, people's court, right? Going all the way back to Judge Wapner. I don't know if there was somebody before him and then into Judge Judy and who, I mean, there's so many things. And in fact, just recently, how many people were captivated, you know, with Johnny Depp's defamation case against his ex, Amanda Heard? How many people are, don't raise your hand, please. But we see it all around us, right? As people are watching on TV, it's all through social media. We're all keeping up to date on what's happening and, and everything going on there. We get fascinated with these kinds of things. We get drawn in. But we're seeing here in God's word that it is not to be that way in the church and among believers, especially when there are problems that, are, that arise. And guess what? They're gonna happen. As soon as you have people come together, we're not going to be immune from differences and disagreements that are going to need to be solved. But those things are to be solved, Paul is saying, within the church. Why go to the unrighteous, Paul says in verse 1. Why take these things to the matter, these matters to people in the world? It doesn't make sense when we have what we need right here in the church to deal with these things, to, to correct these things, to bring help in these things. When we take our matters to the legal systems of the world, we're, we're putting our decisions and outcomes in the hands of the unrighteous. And again, that's not to imply that they're you know, necessarily just corrupt, that they're against righteousness, even though some of that might be the case, but it's to imply that these are people that are not walking with the Lord. They haven't received that righteousness of Christ. They're not in Christ. They don't have the same values that we as Christians are gonna have, that we're gonna hold to. So why look to them to bring proper ruling into matters of disagreement among believers? It doesn't add up, it doesn't make sense here. And you see, Paul's gonna build a case now 
to reveal how believers are actually ones that should be exercising right judgment because judging is something that we are gonna become very familiar with. Look at what he says here in verse two. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Paul says the saints are gonna judge the world. Now some of you are going, okay, well that's interesting and that's all, they may deserve it, they may have earned it, but understand who the saints are. Because notice Paul says in that same sentence or in that same verse that the saints will judge the world and that the world will be judged by who? By you, he says, to this church at Corinth, to this church that was very carnal, yet they were in Christ. And because you're in Christ, guess what? You're a saint. A saint is not somebody that's reached to some spiritual you know, level of elitism or has been prayed into sainthood. A saint is simply one that is in Christ. They've been set apart to the Lord. They're living in the Lord. Thus, they are saints. So in other words, as believers today, as the church today, you are saints. And guess what? You are going to be judging the world. That's pretty amazing. So if you're gonna be judging the world, how much more than should you be able to handle matters of even less significance in the church? Like somebody that squabbles over another person taking their casserole dish home after a potluck, right? It's like, we can deal with that. We don't need to sue one another over something like that. Now, I know the obvious question arises here, like, well, what kind of casserole dish are we talking about exactly? Because that could have a bearing in really to the degree. No, that's not what we're saying. The real question here, looking at this, I'm sure many of you are wondering, how in the world are the saints gonna judge the world? What does that mean? What are we talking about? Some of you are saying, I can't even get my kids to stay in their bed at bedtime, let alone judging the world. How is this gonna work? What does this mean exactly? What is Paul getting at here? Well, listen, let me break this down for you a little bit here if I can. We understand from Revelation chapter 20, this end times scenario that's gonna be unfolding. Revelation 19 says that, that Christ is gonna be coming back and he's gonna be coming back with who? His saints at his side, right? That's all of us. So at the end of the tribulation, which is the, the timeline of Revelation 19 into Revelation 20, at the end of the tribulation, there's gonna be a, a, a real gathering together of nations that are coming against God and against God's people Israel during the tribulation. The Battle of Armageddon is what it's known as. And this is all gonna be unfolding, but then the Lord's gonna come back and with just a, the word of his mouth is gonna bring an end to all these, all these people. And there's gonna be the gathering, Matthew 25 speaks about the gathering of the sheep and the goats or the, the, the judgment of the nations. The Lord's gonna be judging these people. Now what's gonna be interesting is that during the tribulation period, these seven years on earth, we're not here We've been in heaven, right? We've been raptured up, Revelation 4, raptured up to heaven for seven years with Jesus. So when he comes back again, we're coming back with him. And we're gonna see this judgment unfold. But what's interesting is during the tribulation period, there are gonna be those that are gonna put their faith in Jesus. They're gonna finally understand that, that he truly is God, the savior of the world. They're gonna repent and they're gonna put their trust in Jesus. So there are gonna be those that are gonna stand before Jesus at that judgment time, Matthew 25 talks about, and they're gonna be brought into the kingdom. You see, when Christ comes back, he's coming back to establish the millennial reign of Christ. This thousand year literal reign and rule of Jesus on the earth, the earth is gonna be transformed. 
And he's going to be reigning and ruling with us at his side. People that are born, uh, people that have made it to the tribulation with faith in Christ are going to be brought into the, the millennial reign, the kingdom of God. They're going to be in their earthly, physical bodies. So they're going to continue on with life and, and reproduction and babies are going to be brought into the kingdom. People are going to grow. They're going to have longer lives. We, however, who have been with Christ for seven years in heaven, coming back with them, we're in our resurrected, glorified bodies. And we're going to be reigning and ruling with Christ. During that millennium, Satan is going to be chained up, bound, put in the bottomless pit. He's going to be no longer influencing the world. So we're not going to see, you know, crime and sin, even though people in their physical body still have the opportunity to sin, but they're not going to. We're going to be, I believe, enforcers of righteousness. We're going to be reigning and ruling with Christ. We see many verses in scripture that speak about this. Revelation 20 verse 4, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. This is also fulfillment of what Daniel the prophet prophesied of in Daniel 7 verse 22, until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the most high and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Matthew 19 verse 28, Jesus himself said, assuredly I say to you, that in the regeneration, right, when he comes back, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, not only the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 2.26 says, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give power over the nations. There'll be nations in the millennium too. And we're gonna have power over them. We're gonna be reigning and ruling with Christ. So what Paul is saying is, with this kind of judgment being entrusted to those who are in Christ, to the saints, then why would we not take matters of less significance to each other and to the church to deal with and bring help in? Paul continues to reveal the significance of the kind of judgment that's going to be entrusted to us. Look at verse three. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Now, saints judging the world is one thing. We can kind of get our, our mind wrapped around that. Like, okay, I don't totally get what that's going to like, but I get it. But judging angels? We go, wait a second. How are we going to judge? I mean, angels are so much more powerful than us. Angels are so much higher. Like, how are we going to be judging angels? Is this going to be like, we're going to be coming down on those, you know, guardian angels over, you know, missed assignments? Like that time I fell out of the tree, I broke my arm. Where were you? Why didn't you catch me? Time for you to be judged now. Like, are we, is that what it's gonna be looking like? No, not at all. That'd be fun to do, but I don't think we're gonna be doing that. But I believe Paul has in mind here, not those angels that are serving God, but those angels that have rejected their place with God, who have been the fallen angels and have followed Satan. Those angels scripture teaches, are going to be judged. These were fallen angels that rebelled against God even after seeing his glory and being a part of the heavenly worship scene. Yet we who have never seen God continue now to, to follow and believe and we're gonna be passing on judgment to these ones who foolishly forsook all. We see some context of that in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse four, where Peter writes, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them in a change of darkness, notice, to be reserved for judgment. Jude 6 says much the same. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, 
He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. There's a judgment coming. And we who are gonna be reigning and ruling with Christ are gonna be a part of that judgment in some way. So Paul's conclusion is this. Since we're gonna be given such heavy responsibility to not only judge angels, but the world as well, and, and all that is coming in, in a future time after this earthly life, then how much more should we be able to handle the things that pertain to this life, Paul says at the end of verse three. He goes on to say it. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? See, understand, there are going to be things, there will be disputes that need to, you know, be helped in, to, to be given wisdom over, to, to get through it, to come to a reasoned outcome and decision. But the question stated here is why take those disputes to those who are least esteemed by the church? To those, as Paul says in verse one, are the unrighteous, those that are not following after the things of God. Why go to the judges of the world who don't follow God's word to find help in matters that need godly wisdom? Doesn't add up, does it? It doesn't make sense to do it. That's like taking your car to a baker to get a tune-up. You go, man, they might throw some you know, icing on that fan belt, but it's not gonna help in the long term. Not gonna be good. Why would we then take matters that pertain to one another and the church who are operating on a whole different value system than the world, why would we turn to the world for help in those things? MacArthur said this, the most legally untrained believers who know the word of God and are obedient to the spirit are far more competent to settle disagreements between believers than the most experienced unbeliever void of God's truth and spirit. So imagine Christians looking for justice from those who have none to give, who aren't in Christ. It doesn't compute, it doesn't make sense. So Paul goes on not just to show Christians who will judge, but now looking in verses five to eight at saints who show poor judgment. Look at verse five. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brother? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. So it was a very shameful thing that Paul was experiencing here within the church in the way that they were operating and conducting themselves, in the way that they were going out into the world and just kind of airing their dirty laundry before the world, giving opportunity for the world to go, man, if they can't even, you know, work through these things themselves, the, 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 this church that's supposed to be, you know, all loving and gracious and kind, love, if they are acting this way among one another, then why would I want to be a part of that? It becomes such a bad witness, you see. And Paul says, I speak this to your shame, that these things are taking place, and you're doing all these things before unbelievers, that you're airing this all out and giving people further excuse or, or validation to say, man, that's the way the church behaves. I don't want anything to do with it. And how we need to watch our, our witness, don't we, in this day that we live. Because so often in the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we act, we show no difference than those in the world. And we show no reason why the world would say, why would I need that then if there's really no difference from the way that I see people living their life in the world? It's not to be that way 
in the church. And Paul says, if you want to jump back a page to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have something to offer here for one another. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Paul says, you've got now, as believers in Christ, you now have the mind of Christ. You're, you're thinking differently on these things. You have the ability to provide through the Spirit wisdom and help for people that are needing help working through things here. Now again, Paul is specifically speaking to Christians who are suing other Christians. That this is happening, you know, brother goes to law against brother, and you do that before unbelievers, it, it ought not to be, it's done to your shame. So this is something that is pertaining to believers and believers. Then the question might be asked, well, what about an unbeliever? Is it okay then for us as a Christian to take an unbeliever to court over a dispute that they're not interested in resolving? And those are, are, are you know, tough questions to answer. I would say if, if you think, you know, you can get a large settlement that you want to tithe half of that to the church, yeah, I think that's totally <laughs> biblical. No, I mean, you know, Paul doesn't address that. Uh, I think you have to totally be led of the Lord. But here's the thing. It'd be great if that non-Christian, that unbeliever would say, well, hey, let's go to your church and see what they want to say. But they're not going to want to do that. They're going to say, why would I listen to the church? Sometimes we have to deal with the world as the world does. And that is taking it to the legal systems that have been provided for us in the world. But you need to be led of the Lord here. Paul goes on to share some very helpful things here for us uh, that, that should ultimately be even a, a higher calling to us as believers. It says in verse seven, notice this. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. See, this is a colossal failure because of the way they were behaving among fellow Christians, it was a terrible witness in the world, but it was also a colossal failure because they were not aligning themselves with the very word of God and in the way that God has directed them to live their lives. Again, notice this, they were acting more for their own interests and their own desires. Paul says, wouldn't it be better to just accept wrong? Why do you not rather just accept wrong? See, there are times where we as believers need to simply lay our own selves down. What we think is, is maybe, you know, helpful for us, we say, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm not gonna fight this. I'm not gonna, you know, continue to put, I'm gonna lay myself down. I'm gonna accept this wrong for the betterment of others and to keep the peace. It's like, you know, my wife and I, at times, if we have a disagreement, even though you know 99% of the time I'm, I'm right, there are those times where I need to say, honey, I'm gonna just give you this one. I'm gonna 
accept wrong and let you have this here to keep the peace, right? That's what we need to do. Pray that that peace continues actually this afternoon. <laughs> and so there are times we need to lay down, even though we might think, no, I've got a, I've got a point to prove here, or I'm in the right. There are times we need to simply accept wrong to say, it's not to my advantage to fight this. It's gonna be more profitable for me just to accept that and move on and, and keep the peace here. That's the way Jesus instructed us. Matthew chapter five, verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever stops you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now some might think, well, you can't just let people walk all over you, can you? Like if I, if I live this kind of life, then people are just gonna see, oh, we can just take advantage of that guy. We're just gonna walk all over him. Now there are times where it's right to stand up for what is right and true. I'm not saying you just become a, a pushover. There are times to stand up, but there are times where we need to just give that over to the Lord to take care of us. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, do not say I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. He does a much, much better job of protecting us than we can do for ourselves. And so there are times we need to just give that over to the Lord and let him take care of the outcomes of those things. So this church here in Corinth was not only carnal as they were being driven by the need to kind of, you know, serve themselves and help themselves, but they were also being corrupt in this. It, it, Paul says, you yourselves do wrong and cheat in verse eight. And you are doing these things towards your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. They were, they were suing one another, seeking a profit from it, and they were being dishonest in the process of it all. Again, just a terrible witness. And we need to be careful that we're not revealing these kinds of traits or examples in, in, in our church and, and towards the world, that this isn't becoming about us and, and wanting to serve ourselves, but ultimately seek to honor the Lord and live for the glory of God. When you do that, he will uphold you and he will protect you. We have a much higher calling than just seeking our own interests. It's about living for the glory and the honor of God. Now, Paul here moves on as we get into verse nine to 11. Paul moves on into a context here that seems like it's kind of out of place now. It's like he throws this in to talk about various sins and we go, what, what, why, why are you jumping into that right now, Paul? This seems to be so you know, out of place. But I think it seems to be very much in place because he's tying this in to show what happens to people that are behaving in a lifestyle of greed and corruption and selfishness. Very similar to how these Corinthian Christians were kind of conducting themselves. Paul says, you know the path that people are on that are living that way and, and look at yourselves here. So we read here in verse nine, as we look at sinners who will be judged, he says in verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Whew, that's quite a list there. 
Now, when Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's speaking of those that just simply have not put their trust in Jesus and received the only righteousness that's available for them to be right with God. Our righteousness does not come from living a good life, being a good person. Our righteousness comes through Christ. Now, Paul says, do not be deceived. In other words, don't think that you can just continue on in your own sin now that you know Jesus. A lot of people in Corinth might have thought, well, we've heard the gospel, we've responded, we're living for Jesus, great. But, you know, we're living for Jesus, but yet we're also gonna, you know, make sure we take care of ourselves. We're gonna do these other things here that, but it's all good. It all balances up because we're in Christ. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't think that you can live this way and still be connected to Christ. It doesn't work. There's gonna be in that day that we stand before the Lord, many that are gonna come and think, oh, it's all good. I've made a profession of you, Jesus. And yet Matthew 7 says they're gonna come saying, Lord, Lord. And Jesus is gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. Matthew 7, verse 22. That's pretty heavy. Why is that gonna happen? Because these are people that might have said, oh, I acknowledge that Jesus exists but they've never truly put their faith in Jesus. And that faith is demonstrated by living in and for Jesus. Just because you go to church doesn't mean everything's gonna take care of itself. A lot of people love to think, oh, in that day, it'll all be fine. You know, God's a God of love. He's a God of mercy and grace. Love wins in the end. It's all gonna work itself out. The Lord says, are you in me? Are you living for me? Paul is painting a picture for this church and for us showing that their sin is as bad as those who are going to be refused entrance into eternal life, into heaven, into the kingdom of God as it's mentioned here. Now before we get in this list, and we're going to break it down a little bit, understand something here. Paul's not saying that if you commit one of these things, boom, that's it, you're out, you're done, you're blowing it. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying those that are living in a pattern of or a lifestyle of these things. If these things are characterizing your life more than a life being lived for God is, then you have no part with him and and you have no inheritance into the kingdom of God. It's, It's living in that habitual pattern of these things without any desire to repent of it to where you say, oh, it's all good. I can live in this and still be forgiven. It's all okay. Or this is not a big deal, it's all okay. First John does a great job of saying it, it, if you sin, the love of God is not in you. He's not talking about if you just happen to stumble into sin, it's if you live that habitual lifestyle of sin without any desire to repent and have that conviction of those things. So, Paul goes and breaks this down here and he mentions, first of all, fornication. That spoke of engaging in a flagrant sexual offense. And anything outside of God's parameters for where this wonderful gift of uh, of sex can be enjoyed, anything outside of that 
is sin. It's wrong. And what's God's parameters for that to be enjoyed? Within the confines of marriage, right? Within the confines, you, you have to really fine-tune that now and today. Within the confines of marriage between a, a husband and a wife, right? A, a biological male and a biological female in marriage. That's what, it's, that's what we're dealing with here. And so anything outside of that, it's, it's sad to see how much the, the lines have just kind of, you know, been, been lowered or the, the, the bar has been lowered in this to where I meet so many Christians nowadays or, or professing Christians that are, you know, living together before marriage or who have kind of, you know, crossed the lines without any kind of, uh, of remorse, repentance of, of intimacy in, in dating relationships, and just feel like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just so, you know, commonplace today in our culture. You know, we sometimes excuse it to say, you know, Paul would have no idea what we have to deal with in terms of, you know, the sexualization of our culture today. I mean, if he, only, if he could understand, I'm sure he would give us a bit of a pass. But do you understand that oftentimes sexual sins are the top of these lists of sins given in Scripture? Why? because this was such a rampant problem in their day. Here in Corinth, they've got the temple of Aphrodite where there were a thousand prostitutes that would come down into the city at night and make themselves available for sexual relationship to the worship of their goddess. This is how depraved the city was. It was probably even more open and depraved as we see it today, even though we're I would say catching up very quickly. But this is a real problem in the state. This is not something that you get a pass on because we live in a culture where this has become such a, you know, public thing now. This is what they were dealing with. Paul says, fornication, the Greek word pornos, anything done outside of the confines of what God gives us to enjoy that in, and that's in the confines of a marriage, is wrong. It's sin, Paul says. Goes on to talk about idolatry idolaters don't, don't enter the kingdom of God. And, and that's something we can go, oh man, well, that's not a big deal today. We don't, we don't deal with idolatry. We don't, I've, we don't have any kind of, you know, statues or idols in our home with candles around it. Well, listen, idolatry is anything that pulls your heart away from God, that you begin to have a greater devotion and heart towards than you do for God. There are people walking around with idols in their pockets today. If this begins to have more of a hold in your life, if you begin to have more of a heart towards being on this than you are with the Lord, that can become an idol. Adulterers, those that are, are unfaithful in marriage relationships. And then he, he mentions homosexuals. This is those who have unnatural relations with the same sex. I don't think I need to break that down much for you. I think you, you get it. But this particular term, uh, that's used here, it, it spoke of, of male prostitutes, ultimately. But a homosexual relationship, and, and man, many will say, you know, this is a certain thing that the Bible speaks out against. It, it's not, you know, what we think of, of homosexuality. In fact, people will say, you know, if two people are in a loving relationship and a same-sex relationship today, then it's okay, that's, that's what matters. As long as they're in a monogamous, faithful, loving relationship today as same-sex partners, then, then it's okay. 
But listen, you can't Greek your way out of this. As much as we like to try to twist scriptures around and say, well, what was really intended here in this, it, it really means this, and it doesn't imply what we see today. No, because Paul goes on to go to, from homosexuals to sodomites, which meant this was any kind of homosexuality in any form. Paul says this is sin. And, and, and he's calling them out on these. And again, this was something that was very commonplace in that day. Sadly, and how commonplace it is today, to the point where I'm grieved over the fact that, that Christians more and more are seeking to align themselves with what culture's been dictating rather than what the Word of God dictates, to where churches now are, are affirming of these things, saying, listen, you know what, we just want to be loving to, you know, loving to the world and uh, we want to be accepting of all people. And so homosexuality is, is fine. If you want to practice that in a loving relationship, well, then, then that's all good. And we have churches today that are affirming these things and all doing it all in the name of love. And yet, what are they doing? They're loving these people straight into hell because the Bible makes it very clear. Those that are practicing these things do not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't have pleasure saying these things that's something I get up for. Oh, I can't wait to talk about homosexuality today, especially during, you know, LGBTQ Pride Month going on, right? It's like, oh, great time for that. I don't get excited about talking about these things, but I recognize the Word of God says what it means and means what it says. And we can't twist these things around to try to align with the culture now. And there's people that don't want to, you know, they don't want to ruffle the feathers of the angry mob, so I'm just going to kind of, you know, be peaceful about these things. But yet, the Bible is clear. Those that practice these things do not inherit the kingdom of God and how we need to speak the truth. Listen, you've heard me say many times before, I'll say it again. Man, I, I hope that we see people from the LGBTQ plus ABCD community come into the church I want them to feel welcome to come in here, but I want them to come in here so that they will hear the gospel, the good news, the hope that we have in Jesus. I want to point them to Jesus. I don't want them to come in here and be comfortable. Just as I wouldn't want anybody to come in here that's engaging in sin as a so-called believer and be comfortable. Because that's not God's best for you. God has something greater for you. He's got life, abundant life, and eternal life. And engaging in these things is going to rob you of that life. Now, there are those that love to say, oh, well, you know what? You know, it's just the way I am. Whether it's sin of homosexuality or sin of anger and wrath, it's just who I am. I was born this way. I didn't choose this. I was just born this way. And that's why Jesus says you need to be born again. Because he comes in and he changes your life and he makes all things new. You're not just born of water, but you're now born of the spirit that brings transformation, regeneration, that takes the old things and he makes you a new creation in Christ. We have no excuse to say, that's just the way I am. I was just born this way. No, Jesus comes and he makes you new. And he has something far greater and better for you. And that's why we want to share these things. Not 
not to hurt people, not to shame people, but to say these things are going to keep you away from the love of God. And I want you to experience relationship in and through Christ and the abundant life he has for you. I want you to be spared from an eternity in hell, and I want you to enjoy the blessedness of eternity with our Savior, Jesus Christ. These things will keep you from that. And again, it's not just homosexuality or sexual sins. It's, look at what we see in verse 10. North thieves, the word kleptos in the Greek, kleptomaniacs, thieves, people that just take things. And that was a problem in that day. If it wasn't chained down, you could expect it to be gone, right? Nor covetousness. That speaks to those that are greedy for more. That was the character of this church oftentimes. Suing one another, saying, oh, I just want to get whatever I can out of them. Covetousness, nor drunkards. Again, a big problem then, a big problem now. Not being mastered by anything. Nor revilers. This, this was those that were abusers and then extortioners looking to rip people off, take advantage of people. Those that practice sin. There's no levels of sin. There's no grades. There's no, well, if you, you know, you can get away with this sin, but just make sure you don't do that sin. There's none of that. Sin is sin. And those that are living in sin, meaning this is the characteristic of your life. You don't in inherit the kingdom of God. Plain and simple. It doesn't mean when you sin, you forfeit eternal life. It means that as believers, when we sin, we should be grieved over that. We should confess that and repent of it, meaning we turn away from it and we turn to the Lord. We say, God, I say the same thing you say about this. That's what, that's what it means to confess. I say the same thing as you say about it, that this is wrong, this is not of you, and I'm sorry for that. I turn from that. I repent of it. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm turning to you. Paul says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And we need to do that. Don't allow sin to rule and reign in your life. Paul's gonna get into more of that in the rest of the chapter that, that we'll take care of next week. But look at, oh my goodness, verse 11. Great verse. Paul says, hey guys, here's the deal. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, this was the condition that these Corinthians were once in. Not to say they were doing all these things, but some of these things, this was the characteristic of their life. Paul says, but this was how you once lived. But now in Christ, this is not how you are to live any longer. You're to be changed, you're to be new. And the beauty of this is this is what the Lord has done for you. That's the power of the gospel. He being, brings the ability, the power to take lives that have been messed up, abused, lost, and bring change for the good. He turns lives around. God brings life to that which was desolate. We can all attest to that work, amen? Praise the Lord for that. So Paul says, here's the, here's the condition now. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. We couldn't wash ourselves, we couldn't clean up ourselves. We are not saved because we've made ourselves a good person. A lot of people think, well, I'm gonna go to heaven because I'm a pretty good person. Listen, there ain't enough soap in this world to clean ourselves up. 
We needed something greater. But you were washed by the blood of the Lamb, Isaiah 118. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's the word that Jesus does. He died for us on the cross. As he paid the penalty for our sins, he cleansed us. We're washed clean. We were sanctified, meaning we've been set apart. We've been declared holy now. We've been declared in Christ. So now live like it. That's where the God has done. And you were justified. We're washed, sanctified, and now we're seen as just before him. No longer does he look at past failures. He sees present righteousness in and through Jesus Christ. That record of wrongs that was there that the devil loves to hold up. Jesus has said, no, I've wiped the slate clean. It is erased. It is clear. You have no longer any debt. As you put your faith in me, you're forgiven and you are justified. Break it down just as if I never sinned. That's what we have in Christ. And notice this. This is not something that the Lord is in the process of doing. Oh, I'm doing my best to make you clean. I'm washing you, but man, you keep dirting yourself up here. Like, stop it already. I'm doing that work of sanctifying you. You got a long ways to go. Oh, I'm seeking to justify you, but man, would you just help me out a little bit? No, that's not what the Lord's saying. This is all spoken in the past tense. This is all something that's already been done in your life, in and through Jesus Christ. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. You are in Christ, complete and whole and made new. Amen. Isn't that good? So Paul says, so Paul says, stop living like you once did and start living like you are now made in Christ, in and through that righteousness of him. Live that way now because that's who you are. That's what Christ has done for you. Don't let the past keep pulling you back. Look at what the Lord has established in you, what he has prepared for you. You're gonna be judging the world. Surely you can take care of little disputes among you. You don't have to be like the world and live like the world any longer. Come out of the world. Be separate from the world and live as a washed, sanctified, justified saint that you are. Let's pray. Worship team, you guys can come up if you're still here. And if you've got kids in Sunday school, if you want to slip out right now and uh, pick up your kids, that would be super helpful. Thank you. Lord, we come before you. We thank you, God, for all that you've done in us and for us, Lord. God, we're so grateful for who you are and what you've made us now. Lord, forgive us when we allow sin to creep in, when we begin to live for ourselves more than you and others. Cleanse us of those things, Lord. Forgive us of that. And may we turn to you and live in that newness of life that you have already done for us as believers in you. Thank you for saving us, Lord. May we go out from here now, walking in that righteousness of Christ, 
living as that example of you in this world. Draw people to you, Lord, and use this church to draw people to you. We ask in your name, amen. I just want to say before we close this song, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've heard the gospel today, the good news. None of us can be right with God by our own doing. We fall short. The Bible says that all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, there's nothing we can do in and for ourselves to be right with God, but God did it all for you. He sent his son Jesus to come to this world to die on a cross. And by doing so, he was paying the penalty for your sin. The penalty of your sin is death. We deserved it. But Jesus died that death in your place. That you could be forgiven, saved, and receive eternal life. And that comes not by you being a good person. That comes by you putting your trust in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. He died and he rose again, securing life for you forever. And that life is given to you as you simply put your faith in Jesus. If you've never done that today, I want to encourage you. Turn to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. We all needed to do that because we were all sinners and guilty before God. Ask him to forgive you your sin and put your trust in him. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. And when you do that, the Bible says you become a born-again child of God. Old things have passed, we build all things have become new. Receive that free gift. It's a free gift by his grace. You don't earn it, you don't achieve it, you simply receive it.